You are listening to ReachMD, the only source for medical education and information that is on air, online, and on the go. Welcome to the Connect Dialogues, women's health education on ReachMD. Hello, I'm Dr. Brian McDonough, and welcome to ReachMD. I'm here with Dr. Linda Bradley. Dr. Bradley is a professor of surgery and vice chair of obstetrics and gynecology in the Women's Health Institute at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. And we're talking here in uh, Manhattan. Uh, we're at the Omnia Prova Educational Meeting uh, in New York, and we have an opportunity in the break room, actually, as people are gathering, getting some food between lectures, to talk a little bit with Dr. Bradley about her areas of interest and focus, and maybe get some clinical information that could be really helpful for those of you listening around the country. I think it's a great opportunity not only to talk about the highlights of your lecture, but to get a chance to maybe ask a few more probing questions in general. So tell me a little bit about what are you speaking about here today and and the major points that you think are crucial. Well, today I'm speaking on three things that I love to speak on, and uh, they include the evaluation and treatment of abnormal uterine bleeding uh, is number one. Another lecture will be uh, centered around late-breaking news uh, vis-a-vis alternatives to hysterectomy, with the subject being uterine fibroid or uterine artery embolization. And then the last one I think is most important nowadays is for women to have an excellent preoperative or just workup for abnormal bleeding and talking about two very useful, easy, straightforward office-based procedures such as office hysteroscopy and something called saline infusion sonogram or SIS that's extremely useful and a necessary tool for OBGYNs in the country to really provide an excellent workup for patients who have abnormal bleeding or infertility or postmenopausal bleeding or leukorrhea, you name it. So basically, some new tools in the tools box uh, with saline infusion sonogram and hysteroscopy, and a lot of things, a lot of buzz around women who want to avoid major surgery about uterine fibroid or uterine artery embolization, and a little bit about the treatment of abnormal bleeding. You know, as in, in particular the abnormal uterine bleeding, this is an issue which if somebody is in their car right now driving and they're listening and they're in primary care, they're in OBGYN, uh, they're in internal medicine, almost any area of medicine, this will impact them because their patients will have that issue. My first question then, just for those who aren't really indoctrinated and fully doing it all the time, what do you consider from your perspective abnormal uterine bleeding and something where patients should start to maybe talk about some interaction and, and guidance? Well, we all know the definition of normal bleeding of three days to seven days of bleeding, but a menstrual cycle should not impact the quality of a woman's life, her hobbies, her sexual activity, her functioning. So even if someone has a normal period that's five days, but she bleeds like Niagara Falls um, and misses work and activities and is anemic, that's a problem. So even within the constraints of a normal definition of duration of three to seven days, if the quality of life, the amount of bleeding and disruption of a woman's life, that's a problem. The other uh, issue has to do with intermittent Uh, bleeding, bleeding after intercourse, bleeding episodically throughout the month. So that by itself kind of sounds like it's abnormal, but we know that we look at time of bleeding, duration, and intensity of bleeding, as well as the interval of bleeding. So if the interval's not right and the amount of bleeding's not right, but more and more the FDA, when we look at new products and medication, we're really looking at QOL, 
quality of life. How is this affecting a patient? And unfortunately for period problems, as much as women have 400 or 500 periods in their lifetime, many women are still very, very silent and afraid to talk to their docs or embarrassed um, about what um, is going on with their menstrual cycles. And they often suffer in silence because of this. And I think personally as a surgeon, uh, OBGYN, that many times the suffering is unnecessary because women often look to what patterns of treatment their mothers or grandmothers, or even great-grandmothers have. And years and years ago, it was extremely common for OBGYNs to only offer hysterectomy. And at that, even removing the ovaries where women were prematurely castrated at a young age, which left them feeling miserable. So women, if they've heard their mom or grandma talk about how they felt after a hysterectomy 20 years ago, we don't do things the same way. We're much more minimally invasive. If we have to do a hysterectomy, we're conserving the ovaries. But most importantly, there's so many steps in treatment that often can keep women from having a major surgical procedure. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough with my guest, Dr. Linda Bradley. Boy, you make a great point because I was thinking about what you said. Yesterday we were speaking with a physician talking about constipation and the issues surrounding it. There are still certain topics that are somewhat taboo. There are many things that are wide open that we talk about, but patients still are a little uh, squeamish about asking about it. And if you take something like abnormal uterine bleeding, combined with the fact they may have misperceptions, they really might not get that opportunity to ask those questions. So as a clinician, as a physician, you probably, I guess, are one of your things, and I know in the lecture, talking about making sure you talk with your patient about it too. Something, do you bring it up with your patients and say, how are your menstrual cycles, how are you doing, or, or by the time they get to you, are they already uh, dealing with that? Well, I actually really am very fortunate that since I'm also the director of the Center for Menstrual Disorders and Fibroids, that many patients um, have already been screened or have not gotten answers that they want or are looking for alternatives. So I think I am able to tease out a little bit by virtue of my practice, but I think it's incumbent upon all physicians not just to ask um, how often your periods are, but are you troubled by them? Are you bothered by them in terms of pain? discomfort amount and duration as well as intensity. So um, I think all of us just to ask, need to ask you know, 10 more seconds of questions, give the patient some time to think about it, and um, then ask a few more probing questions about is her life bal- work-life balance altered when she's on her period. I mean, women should be able to do sports, should travel, should be able to work, should not have to worry about standing up leaving a puddle um, on their chair or on the airplane seats or in a hotel mattress. So I'm just saying I think we have to ask a little bit more, and the real big issue these days is quality of life. So um, I think that's important, however we phrase that for our patients. So when someone is not necessarily diagnosed, but you diagnose it through the discussion and you start to realize there's something going, what are the next steps the traditional ones, things we're doing, then into a little bit of the, the newer things that you're talking about in your talk? Well, I think we still have to do the physical examination because not all pathology, a good physical exam and an excellent history is important. Just three days ago, I saw a patient asked about her periods. There, She's 30 days in a month. She's bleeding 20 days. But I also asked those secondary questions. She fatigued? Is she tired? Is she constipated? Does she have hair loss? It turns out I'm getting back her TSH and it's 25. So you can have thyroid disorders that lead to menstrual dysfunction. 
I pick up patients with leukemia. You know, do you have nosebleeds, gums bleeds? Are you bruising? So you have to sort of look also outside of the anatomy uh, for which the patients are coming to you for, meaning the uterine anatomy. I pick up vaginal cancer. We pick up an older woman bladder cancer. The blood is not coming from the vagina or the cervix, but indeed it's hematuria. So I think the history is extremely important, and that's what I learned in med school, and we don't want to give that up. In this day of high tech, there's still what I call high touch uh, with talking with our patients. And so then it's guided by her physical examination. So a uterus that's 20 weeks gestational size, the workup will be a different pathway. The size of a six-month pregnancy or three-month pregnancy is different than when the uterus is of normal size. So it's a little hard to know what algorithm or what pathway I would take. It's guided by history, physical examination. And then the test that may be important would be imaging, um, such as saline infusion sonogram or office hysteroscopy. And those are the things I'll also be talking about a little bit today. The office hysteroscopy might be a little technical for some who wouldn't be pursuing that, but I, I think it's important because there is a core of listeners I know who are interested. Tell me a little bit about that because that is exciting. Yeah, it's exciting. Uh, it's a technology that we use in the office. I've been at the clinic now 21 years and I've done about 18,000 office hysteroscopies. It's to me bread and butter. There's a three millimeter flexible hysteroscope. It's as small as the IUD that we put in a patient. It's as small as a pipel biopsy that we use. Very comfortable. We don't have to dilate the cervix in the majority of patients. It allows you to have a panoramic, beautiful view of the intrauterine architecture or landscape. And I think, and I'm going to be a little bit um, pushy on this to say that our surgeons, um, anyone that's um, out of med school or residency, I should say, more than three years, docs are learning robotic hysterectomy. New technology, new toys, new techniques. Hysteroscopy has been around for many years. Only 25% of gynecologists are using it. So I would say partner with a physician that's using it. Uh, it's extremely important, and it's easy to learn if those in the audience are um, physicians, take courses, uh, come to conferences. Um, there are many, many things, and or use the saline infusion sonogram, which is basically an enhancement of a transvaginal ultrasound by just adding a small catheter that allows beautiful imagery of the uterine architecture. So I think we have to be lifelong learners as physicians and good stewards for our patients and um, go back and get retrained. Um, Half-life of medical knowledge is three years. So if we don't keep up, we're going to be outdated. And I just encourage patients to seek physicians who are offering these new technologies that are quick, comfortable in the office, and also push our physicians to learn um, this technology. It's very, very simple. We have a few more minutes with our guest, Dr. Linda Bradley. You're listening to ReachMD, the network for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Brian McDonough. And, boy, you talk about the half-life of knowledge being three years. It's one of the reasons why we encourage people to listen to this, because you can learn about things. And the office hysteroscopy, I, I think you make an excellent point, because at my hospital and probably hospitals all throughout community and major medical centers, you know, the, the robotics are big. I mean, it's the it's the tool everybody's talking about. You can hear them talking about in the doctor's lounge about what they're doing. But something like this, which can be done in the office and it's been around, it, even to me as a family doc who doesn't do a lot of procedure, it sounds relatively simple. It doesn't sound that dramatic. Correct. It's very simple. You know, we do cystoscopy. You know, if you went to um, a urologist with complaints of hematuria, they're not going to do a blind procedure. And our blind procedures currently are still DNCs and endometrial biopsy. So if you had hematuria, what are they going to use? A cystoscope. If you had a chronic cough, 
what your pulmonologist is going to use, a bronchoscope. If you had rectal bleeding or uh, change in your stools, they're going to use a colonoscope. All of these scopes are much bigger than a three millimeter scope. Um, the beauty now, we are getting more physicians interested because we can not only use it for diagnostic, we also can use it for doing office sterilization. So there is a procedure, actually I did one of the first in the country called Esure. Uh, it's a company named Conceptus that uh, has partnered with studies through the FDA and that is a procedure where we can um, do sterilization in the office in 10 minutes, requires hysteroscopy experience. So I think that's helping to drive some of the interest because we can offer surgical procedures, but still f there are many, many more cases of abnormal bleeding than there are women who are wishing sterilization. What do you think the barriers have been? Is it, is it payment? Is it lack of knowledge? I mean, I can't imagine at this stage it's lack of knowledge because it's been out there. Um, what, what has been the barriers as you see it? I think the barriers are always money. So the cost of equipment and the second thing is poor reimbursement. So for a hospital-based practice for which I'm employed by the hospital, this makes all the sense. Uh, a program like or HMO like a Kaiser or others would find this very attractive because if you can keep a patient, what happens now is everybody gets hysteroscopy goes to the OR. Why go to the OR when you put the patient to sleep, you look inside and there's nothing there. There is nothing there that patients should be treated medically. Maybe an IUD, a Mirena, or Libranogestrel IUD would be helpful. So we're trying to, I think it decreases costs, but it is you know, costly to, to purchase the equipment, the towers, the light source, and things like that. But I think we have to be thought leaders and sort of start saying what's best for the patient and be champions to speak up and speak with our administrators. And you do a cost analysis, it's much better. You know, and we're both chairs in, in our own fields, and it's interesting because um, for those who are chairs, you know this. For those who aren't, or will probably end up doing it like all of us, get roped into this at some point in our career. What you find is there are not just the medical decisions, but the cost-based decisions. And usually as a chair, you're put in the position where you have to analyze both. And, and you're right, a lot of decisions are made based on cost. But we as clinicians also have to consider not just cost, but what makes it better for your patient. And if this is something that's simple that you write, that allows you to look at the architecture, it allows you to get a sense of what's going on, it can only make for a better procedure. And again, you may look at this, maybe every physician... Um, is not interested in being a proceduralist, but the beauty that the Cleveland Clinic offers is that we often look at ourselves as um, thought leaders, innovators, and also um, centers of excellence. So at the Cleveland Clinic, I do the majority of the hysteroscopy, and I'm training younger staff. We don't have all you know, 15 docs doing this. We have some, you know, a group that's interested in urogynecology, a group that's interested in oncology, infertility. So, you know, I don't think if you're, if you're looking at an institution, we're not looking at buying every doc at every satellite facility a hysteroscope, and it is expensive, but trying to get a workup established and then funnel patients in for the um, diagnostic portion of the procedure. One last question, because uh, this has been a fascinating interview, but we are running out of time, unfortunately. Um, what do you think would be the most important point out of your lectures today you'd want to share? Just do it. <laughs> That's great. Hey, thank you, Dr. Bradley. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough. My guest has been Dr. Linda Bradley. We're reporting from Manhattan. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Connect Dialogues, women's health education. If you missed any part of this program or would like to hear more like it, visit www.reachmd.com forward slash connect dialogues.